if I was with friends and my brother showed up or we were going somewhere where my brother was, I always did have this this anticipation of how that was how that was going to go with him. Welcome to episode 38 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Matthew, Lee, and Ruth. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Matthew, Lee, and Ruth, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with a seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Today we are doing another roundtable episode for siblings of alcoholics and addicts. We have with us some guests that have siblings that are alcoholics or addicts. Before we begin, we would like to state that though we and our guests may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During the show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Swetha, and I'll be your host today, and I'd like to ask our guests to introduce themselves. I'm Jane. Rick. Uh, Glad you're with us. Um, So the first segment of today's episode of The Recovery Show will be our discussion during the sibling roundtable. Following a musical break, we will provide some brief news about the podcast before closing with another musical break. So I think we're going to start with just having each of you briefly describe your situation and, uh, and background in the context of your siblings who are alcoholics or addicts. Would you like to start us off, Rick? Jane. (laughs) Or Jane. I can. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so so I have um, an alcoholic brother who started uh, drinking, from what I remember, when um, we were in high school. We were close in age. He's a year younger than me. It took him a long, long time to get sober. I think he got sober finally when he was in his 40s. But in between that time, there was a lot of um, chaos that he created for himself and also for the family, um, which was really hard to deal with. Now that he's in recovery, he still sometimes creates chaos, um, (laughs) still. (laughs) Um, and I find it very helpful to be an Al-Anon in, uh, in dealing with that, so I'm not drawn into his chaos. All right. Uh, thank you, Jane. And Rick, would you like to describe your experiences? I, I, I guess my younger brother was, uh, um, started drinking and probably doing drugs when he was uh, probably in middle school. And, you know, we've always been pretty close. So, uh, I guess it's been, uh, I guess, difficult to uh, always know what's going on and how to be uh, uh, helpful. I, I think there's also some kind of family dynamics that emerge with uh, an alcoholic sibling. So, I think that was probably challenging. Um, also, I guess it continues to be challenging. Okay. Um, well, so I, I kind of heard both of you uh, sort of refer to how life was or uh, when when you were growing up and, and family dynamics. Would you guys mind elaborating on that a little bit and just maybe talking about how, how 
your relationship with your family was affected? I mean, did you feel that you were responsible for certain things like your parents' happiness, your siblings' sobriety, or, or protecting your family or your sibling, or maybe even um, pressure to be the the good kid or pressure to um, make up for some make in in part to keep your family happy is there anything anything like that you felt so when i was growing up my household was chaotic even before my brother started using drugs and alcohol my dad was an alcoholic and um wasn't around much and when he was there there was a lot of arguing and chaos between my parents I learned at an early age to be a good kid that my way to stay out of trouble was to and to stay below the radar was to do well in things and to so that meant at school and in sports and help out around the house and you know cook meals and clean up and do all that kind of thing that would keep me busy and out of trouble. My brother, on the other hand, um, his niche was the opposite. He was, he was the one always getting into trouble, and there was a lot of attention focused there. Um, getting in trouble at school, he did bad in school, you know, he didn't get good grades, and calls home from the teacher, and then he started using drugs and alcohol, and he started lashing out, and there were a lot of fights, and him walking out of the house, and he ran away from home once, I remember. He hitchhiked to St. Louis, Missouri from Maryland when he was sometime in high school. I can't remember what grade it was in. Um, And I guess uh, I always try to help out you know, but I, I, I guess I, I didn't feel responsible for that until I was in my junior year in high school. And I started dating this guy who turned out to be a drug addict. And he then befriended my brother and became a supplier to him of drugs. And for that, I, I, I felt guilty about, you know, my brother already had a problem, but I, I felt that, uh, it, it, I think it got worse, um, and I did feel responsible, you know, for that. I felt very badly about that. So I probably also just in listening to Jane uh, uh, developed a similar kind of early way of dealing dealing with life in that way, and just kind of trying to go under the radar. Um. So you know, when there was kind of arguing. Um, at home, I just wanted to be, uh, um, I usually wanted to be kind of just out of sight and unseen. Remember there was like a computer kind of in the corner of the living room that I would just hide out in. Whether I had work to, schoolwork or do to not, I would just pretend that I had schoolwork to do just so I could be there and at, just out of the way as possible. And, um... You know, and uh, I guess I did, you know, I, I think I was jealous of attention that my brother got, um, even though it was, like, negative attention. Um, and so, 
you know, sometimes I'd, I'd, uh, bully or do mean things to my brother, probably out of, uh, some jealousy or, um, I don't know. And then it's like, my brother also seemed to look up to me a lot, um, growing up and, uh, so, uh, I do feel like maybe I, that there were times when I, I, um, you know, could have been a better brother, but, you know, it's difficult knowing what to do when you're before, like, the age of reason, and, uh, I honestly didn't even know that he was, like, doing drugs and drinking. I just thought there was just always fighting, and he'd be at the table and just so wasted. I just thought he was, like, an idiot, like, I didn't think he had a drug and alcohol problem. I just thought he was, like, kind of an asshole and an idiot. He couldn't follow conversations and all that stuff. And I just had no idea what was going on. And he always wanted to, like, hang out with me and my friends because um, none of us drank or did any drugs. But he was just so profoundly weird to me that, like, I didn't want him around at that time. Um... So, and then, I mean, I guess that, you know, prior, so I I eventually felt like trying to be perfect wasn't working as far as, like, getting what I needed, uh, you know, kind of emotionally out of life. So I tried a whole bunch of other stuff, too, kind of after high school. And actually during high school, I just started not caring about school anymore, even though I wasn't doing drugs or drinking. I just... You know, it's like that feeling of just looking for something and not knowing what you're looking for and or like where where I'd find it. You know, I did go on an, an errand to fix my brother in college because I'd heard that like he just wasn't going to school and he was doing terribly and this and that. And I was doing pretty bad, too, at the time. But I went over there and he and I just ended up just doing a bunch of drugs and drinking together and and we, we, I mean, we kind of had a good time, you know, we really wanted, I really wanted to connect and, and relate. And, um, you know, some of the best times I had, um, like smoking pot and drinking alcohol with my brother. And he might've also been on like, you know, hydrocodone and Valium and whatever the hell else was going on. But, you know, we got to act like kids and, goof around and I kind of like that anyway I feel like I veered far off the question <laughs> <laughs> no that's um that's really good I was actually going to ask a little bit more about I mean both of you kind of were talking about some social specific social situations with people your own age growing up and um and I wondered uh, kind of how did how was that affected by by having a sibling and that was an addict did that were you less comfortable bringing people home were you did you were you able to engage with your sibling more or less or how how did that affect you socially what did that mean for you socially with people your own age with your friends so for me um we went to different schools so socially our uh our friends really did not overlap. We went to the same school until eighth grade. And then for high school, I went to an all-girls school. 
And um, my brother went to the public school in, in our neighborhood. So socially, we really didn't cross paths a lot. We might have gone to parties a couple of times, once or twice, but we really didn't. The piece about not wanting to bring people home had way more to do with my dad than it had to do with my brother. You know, it was um, my dad not showing up or showing up drunk or, you know, plans falling through or things flying, crashing, you know, that that kind of thing, you know. Um, that was the, that was really the reason I didn't want to bring people home. It wasn't it wasn't my brother. Okay. Um, Rick? Yeah, like Jane mentioned dating a drug addict and I probably found people to date who were uh had problems. And um you know, I'd find myself in a role of like fixing their problems. And uh I uh, I think that probably just had a lot to do with uh the just all those kind of dynamics growing up and not really knowing like I mean not like drug problems people I date, but just you know, this and that and kind of uh finding myself in a comfortable role of someone who's just not getting their needs met but trying to get everyone else's needs met um, and kind of shrinking and uh, kind of not, you know, really having an identity, kind of losing my identity in other people and that kind of thing. Um, and then, yeah, now, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, I would kind of like, I wish like, other people, no one made me feel uncomfortable or this and that, but it's difficult when someone's behaving in such a, um, unsavory, just unhealthy way. It's difficult to bring, bring people around and like, you know, you'll want people to be part of your life more, but it's, uh, it's, it's difficult. It's like an alcoholic in his cups, an un- unlovely creature or something like that. Very difficult. You know, it creates a lot of, uh, constant chaos and turmoil and the the ground is never level you never really know what to expect and um you know it's difficult to be around that environment or to go in and out and uh, bring people there so i heard both of you talk about relationships you had with people that um for example jane you were mentioning that you had a relationship with an addict and rick you were mentioning that you found yourself engaging in relationships with people you felt you had to quote unquote fix um and I was wondering if you noticed your relationship with your sibling mirrored in other relationships in addition to these, both before recovery and while you were involved in recovery. Jane, do you want to start us off? Sure. So that boyfriend that I had, he was my first boyfriend, although I had crushes on other guys, but when I was a junior in high school, uh, when I found out he was a drug addict, that relationship began became all about trying to fix him. Mm-hmm. I was going to save him. I had the answers. I was just convinced that that if he loved me and I loved him back, then he would quit doing all those things he was doing. And and I really I really believed that that was going to be true and I would get my hopes up and then he would shoot heroin again. And then I would think, well, I just have to love him more. And if he loved me back, then he wouldn't do that again. And it happened over and over again. That was crazy. Um, 
you know, later on in my life, I had a son who became addicted to drugs. And that same kind of fixing feeling I, I, I felt there, you know, that I could, that I could, if I only said the right thing or did the right thing or with the right intonation or in the right way or with the right words or, um, then it, it would, it would make him stop. So that feeling that I could have some control over it, which obviously was an illusion, but I, I, I really, I really, really tried. You know, sometimes I would get angry with them, and sometimes I would be super nice with him, and other times I would feel like a martyr. It ran the whole gamut in my efforts to try and get him to stop. Um, you know, the piece that was from the earlier question about, was it hard to bring people around? You know, I thought about that a little bit more as I listened to Rick, and I realized that you know, later on when I was in college and, and afterwards, if I had, if I was with friends and my brother showed up or we were going somewhere where my brother was, I always did have this, this anticipation of how that was, how that was going to go with him. You know, I was, I would, cause I was embarrassed, I think, by him and by his behavior. He was unpredictable. He would say things that were just, outrageous um he could be confrontational and and you never you never knew you never knew how he was how he was going to be and he told a lot of stories you know which were a lot of i thought a lot of bs he always had another story to tell about you know what he was going to be doing and it you know they they just didn't pan out and so it, it was always another story and then another story and then another story and um I still get phone calls like that even though he's been sober for a few years now uh, he still has that same kind of behavior of being unpredictable and getting in other people's business and uh you know his success is just around the corner with this latest new idea kind of thing um so I've got better about gotten better about listening to that or setting boundaries about you know how much I'm going to listen to because it's kind of the same thing over and over and over again. So I don't know if I answered the question, but those were the thoughts that I had. <laughs> I think you did. Oh, did you have mm. anything to add to that, Rick? Yeah, I guess probably that boundary thing is uh, uh, you know important too, and just being able to like recognize when it's time for me to enter and exit a, uh, an environment, um, just based on my own kind of internal compass rather than trying to, um, read other people's emotional states and stuff and kind of live it in fear that way. Mm. Um, I mean, it seems like it's hard to say what's, what's as a result of living with a sibling with an alcoholism or living with two parents who had, alcoholism and their families or whatever. But, uh, I mean, it seems like I, I do notice a lot of sort of situations where it's like I'm, uh, I'm living and experiencing a, a uh, just a, like an unattended child, 
Like, I just feel like a, a kid that's just not getting his needs met or I shut down or something like that. And, and, uh, it seems like noticing, you know, noticing those environments and noticing those situations and then, uh, coming to some decision or uh, a place, uh, within where it is like safe, um, is like something that I'm kind of, uh, working on. Um, yeah, if you have someone that's so unpredictable, you never know when they're gonna fly off the handle. It's like, yeah, you, it's like kind of harder to say what you think, you know, or, or if so, you know, if you have a sibling who just talks and talks and talks and dominates every room that he's in, it, you know, it can be difficult. So, you know, I either have to make decisions about whether I'm gonna stay and be around that or leave and not do that or say something or whatever. Um, I mean, I'm, a, I'm honestly, I'm just sick of this shit over fucking years and years. And it's like, sometimes you think it's getting better and other times it's obviously not. And, um, you know, it can be really difficult because, uh, you know, my brother, when he's sober and healthy is just, uh, just amazing. You know, you can talk to him about anything. He's loving and kind and generous and but my brother when he's unhealthy is is really really difficult to get along with and uh you know he tells me that he considers me his like best friend or his only friend and that that kind of makes it more even more uh it's like wow that's heavy you know and uh so you know I do my best to come and visit for a time that feels appropriate if I get blamed for something that I haven't done wrong to not accept the blame. Um, and, uh, I don't know. I feel like there's the whole aspect of recovery that's about going, you know, going within and being, discovering healthy ways yourself. But when you're dealing with someone who's basically an active addiction, um, you know, Al Anon becomes more about just how do I cope with, with, uh, with this situation. And I feel like that's where I'm at more right now with my relationship with my brother, whether, whether he's an active addiction or not, it's just, he's really difficult to get along with right now. And, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. That's all I got. Okay. Um, something I kind of heard you both talk about referred to how you guys defined love. Um, Rick, you were mentioning feeling like a child whose needs aren't met and, and Jane, I heard you say, um, if he loved me enough with your, with your first boyfriend, if he loved me enough, he would um, do X, Y, and Z. So maybe we can go into that a little bit more and talk about how you defined love in the past and before the program and how, what that is, what love is to you now that you've, uh, both been in program in recovery programs yourself. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's an inter inter interesting question. You know, um, I was talking to my sponsor not too long ago and telling her that when I was growing up, I felt more needed than I felt loved. I felt like, you know, I, I was the oldest of a lot, a lot of kids in the family, and uh, we're all about a year apart, 
couple of us are less than a year apart. And um, in, in a very chaotic family with my dad's bad behaviors. And I stepped in at an, at an early age to help help my mom. And, uh, and for me, that meant changing diapers and getting up in the middle of the night, feeding, feeding the youngest baby, um, cooking meals, you know, cleaning up, just doing stuff that usually a mom does. And, um, and I got a lot of, I got a lot of, uh, positive feedback about those, that role that I had, which made me feel good. It kept me out of trouble too when other people in the family were creating chaos. You know, but when, it, when I think about love, did I, did I feel loved? You know, I think I felt more needed than, than I felt loved. Um, I know a lot of the, the, a lot of the other positive affirmations that I got had to do with my achievements. You know, whether that was academic or in sports, I was a pretty good athlete. And I did a lot of sports and I did them really pretty well. And, um, so I got a lot of positive feedback for that. And, and then just being a good kid, you know, and just staying out of trouble. Um, I didn't know what conditional love was or unconditional love, uh, till, till much later on, till I got into, into Al-Anon. And, um, uh, I know as a parent, I exhibited a lot of behavior that, um, you know, set expectations for kind of the same, same things that, you know, those expectations were set on me with regard to doing well. And, uh, and I, and I realize now that, you know, a lot of that f- feels a lot like, you know, c- conditional kind of love and, uh, that I had no idea about before. So, you know, I've been in Al-Anon quite a while and learned about, you know, a- accepting people for who they're at, who they are and where they're at and, uh, loving them for who they're, who they are and where, where they're at. And, um, and I try and do that. And I, and I also have learned in the program what, uh, un- what it feels like to receive uh, unconditional love. Um, cause I don't feel like I, I had that much growing up in my family. I had an aunt who I know loved me. And I had my grandmother who I know loved me. And that, you know, looking back, that was, that was unconditional love. But they were kind of in and out of my life. They didn't live with me. Um, but I, I, I recognize that as, as being a, a unconditional love that was different from what I got from, you know, my nuclear family. Okay. Rick? Well, I guess I could relate a lot with what Jane was talking about. We seem to have a lot in common. Um, I mean, I think I had a really similar experience. I feel like I probably experienced the unconditional love through my uh, grandmother and so much so to the effect that, like, I think when she died, I part of me stopped believing in God 
because I didn't feel it in church. I didn't feel it in so many areas. Um, you know, probably my first group of friends I had in, in um, recovery were I could, you know, we would, we would go hang out at the same places and diners and stuff. And I could say exactly what was going on at that time. And they were just, they were just happy to see me. And, you know, they wouldn't even comment. It's just like they just held their seats. You know, they just, they just, um, create an environment for uh, me to just be me and find out who I was. And, um, you know, there was a, um, yoga teacher who hired me to and told me to that she'd pay me in free yoga and um you know I took her up on it and and um you know doing some of those poses or just lying on my back and doing nothing but feeling love was a a big moment for me um and you know I could see that like love existed independent of uh, other people and, um, that like all the love I needed was, you know, with me and, and it could be shared with other people and, and, um, you know, traded, I guess, like passed around, shared really, but that, um, you know, that all the love I needed was, uh, to be found, to be found within. And that was painful really to, uh, experience. I would you know, I did a lot of uh, crying when I started going to Al-Anon and um, doing yoga. And, you know, when people would tell me that, like, that, like, God loves me, um, it was just like, what? Like, does he, even, does he even know who I am? And, like, it just felt ludicrous. Or, like, some of these yoga people would just, they would just hug each other for a long period of time. And at first that was just so uncomfortable. Like I hated being hugged by someone that wasn't an immediate family member or someone I was like dating. And um it just felt like too raw. And um you know, now it's just like a great thing. You know, there there are people I see that are like they just kind of exhibit that. And um you know, I uh I don't try to get all of my need met from um, a small group of people or from Al-Anon or from a partner or from parent or sibling. It's just uh, unreasonable. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, it seemed like when I got quiet and stopped making noise for long enough and and uh, was placed in a loving uh, situation that, um, that a, a certain spark got lit, um, where I could kind of experience that. Whereas before it's like, I had tried to look for it in so many different ways and it just wasn't happening. But I think that the real God is just kind of like that. It's like, uh, you just show up and it appears when you don't know it and can be really transformative. Okay. Um, Another question I have for you, uh, for you two, is about how you related with people when 
things got difficult, like difficult conversations or difficult topics. I feel like, Rick, you, you kind of touched on it when you were talking about feeling uncomfortable with hugging and how raw it felt. And um, I, I was wondering more about, in terms of confrontations, conflicts, um, being honest about things that were difficult for you growing up in that household um, with your sibling, maybe with other people, what that was like and maybe what it's like now. If you could share your experience. Yeah, so I hated conflict. <laughs> I still don't like conflict. <laughs> um, I've gotten a little bit better handling it, using some tools of the program and some other things that I've picked up. Um, but growing up in the environment I grew up with, with my dad, with my brother, um, was scary. I, and I was, I was scared. You know, my dad would walk in the door and I was just scared because I just, I just knew what was coming. And, um, so I, I, I learned a lot of fear and anticipation of bad situations and, and then when when they happen, I I just would just cower in fear, and uh, you know go go to sleep crying a lot, and um, so I would just shut down, basically, you know. Uh, yeah, I remember I remember my my parents one fight they had, one of them threw the waffle iron at the other, and and it, there was just all this commotion I came running from another room and uh you know I, I I didn't say anything I just I just kind of looked I was a kid and then another time my um you know my dad my dad just just hit my mom in the jaw and I ended up going with her to the ER to get her jaw to get her jaw x-rayed you know and then the police came to the house and took my dad away and um you know, but uh, I kept it all inside. I mean, that conflict that I saw, I mean, I, I had that that conflict like inside of me just eating me up. And um, yeah, I didn't I didn't know what to do with it. You know, nobody was talking about what was going on in, in my house. I was just experiencing the next bad thing that came along. And, um, you know, it was, it was difficult. So I... I uh I didn't have any skills. I didn't learn any skills for dealing with conflict in a healthy way. It was it was for me it was always running from it, shutting down and just running from it. Um so it's been it was the same thing in dealing with conflicts with with my you know alcoholic brother or with other people. You know, I would either say nothing or what would come out of my mouth would be something that would just really blame the other person. You know, you did this and you did that and why did you do this and why did you do that? Um, and that would just escalate the, the, the conflict and never would never get resolved. So, so I had a lot of work to do and, um, it's taken a while in Al-Anon, but I've learned some better skills for that, um, you know, when to speak up and how to speak up. And uh, 
that's that's really been helpful. And um, I think what's been the most help is for for me, I guess, a couple of things is one knowing when to step in when it's when it's my business, and when it's not. And uh, the other thing is is um, how to speak up in a way that just speaks from my own truth and my own feelings without pointing fingers and blaming somebody else and without the you did this to me and you caused this in me. It's, you know, accepting my own feelings and being okay with saying, you know, when I notice this, this makes me feel this way, you know. Kind of like, this is what I'm seeing and this is what I'm feeling, you know, instead of you're doing this to me. Um, so that's helped me tremendously. And I learned, I learned that in Al-Anon. I learned that in the program to get in touch with my feelings, identify them. And, um, and that I have choices what, what to do from there, whether I speak up or not and how I speak up. And, and usually it's most healthy when I speak up from my own point of view, like, like I'm, I'm feeling this or I, I'm uncomfortable with this. Um, and so that, that helps me. I use that at work too. It works well, you know, with, in my family as well, as well as with work. I still have to work on it, you know, because I have all that history of, you know, reacting in a different way that can still try and come up sometimes. So, but the program helps me. I have to keep coming back. Yeah. Boy, me too. I, I just totally uh, uh, hated uh, conflict. Um, and at the same time, found a way to sort of stir it up, um, you know, and kind of get away with it, push people's buttons, and then turn around and shut the door or something like that. Um, but yeah, I think what Jane was talking about has uh, been something I've been working on too, or just identifying the way I'm feeling about it and communicating. Uh, communicating just that and um, it recently was helpful at work too like so oh so one thing kind of associated with that is like if someone would say anything remotely of critical about me I would just completely internalize it um, and just yeah wow they really like saw who I am and if someone would say something nice I'd be like quick to argue with them and you know I'm at a new job new cast of characters and stuff and there's this one lady that like she would just make snippy comments and I'd be sitting like five feet away and she would be criticizing me to someone, to another coworker, like kind of under her breath, but totally within earshot. And I think before this whole Al-Anon thing, I just would have been even more in fear about like, oh my God, I'm not doing anything right. And I got to please this woman and stuff like that. But you know, I just ended up being like, you know, to hell with this woman. And I talked to my superior. I was like, you know, I, I just, I don't even know how to have this conversation. I'm feeling a little bit afraid to even have it, but you know, this is what I'm seeing and I'm feeling just sort of unsettled. I'm not sure what, and she's like, oh yeah, is it Deb? Yeah. Yeah. We, that's problematic. And it was like, this is great. You know, this is something I just would have walked around with for who knows how long and then complained to other people about, but I don't need to complain about her so much. I know that she's a crazy, you know, adolescent, you know, just cranky, shitty woman. And that I am 
accurate in perceiving it that way. And for me, that's been a powerful thing to be like, that person is not healthy and I can recognize that. Um, whereas before it was like, I, I would justify things for other people in my head and make excuses for them and just make excuses for ways that they were treating me. And, and, uh, you know, I don't, I don't have to do that. You know, like one, one way that I, one kind of coping mechanism for dealing with the whatever life was just to be afraid of everything and afraid of conflict, afraid of this and that. But it made me afraid of all the wonderful things in life too. Like, you know, afraid to be actually honest with people and to try new things, to try things. I always thought that I would be made fun of all the time and that I was weird. And so I would be afraid to try things that seemed, you know, interesting to me um, because I didn't want to be judged. And um, someone uh, suggested I read a book called something like Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And, you know, there's stuff that I'm, okay, the fear is a legitimate function. It's keeping me safe. Um, but there's a lot of just fear run wild. And, um, a few years ago, I started doing, like, I joined the Argentine Tango Club. And this was something that totally terrified me on a lot of levels. Like, to be, uh, well, first, just to be like a straight guy dancing in some stylized way. And to be in close contact with people the opposite sex and to be on a dance floor and to be improvising in front of other people. It was just like a lot of stuff. Um, but it was a really awesome thing. And to know that like I could live life and do interesting things and follow my heart and still have the fear. Like the fear, I don't need to overcome the fear before I do, before I live my life. I can feel the fear and then, and, live in in spite of it or with it, recognizing it. So that was kind of a cool moment. So that, that sounds great. Uh, I was, so I think we're going to be wrapping up here. Do you guys have any final thoughts or uh, maybe experiences about your life now or anything you want to share with people in having the experience of uh, having a sibling that's an alcoholic or an addict? Just get your own life. it's very important to just get your own life find things that matter to you and that you love and pursue them you know get the hell out of your siblings way okay any follow up to that Jane (laughs) (laughs) yeah I mean I laughed because it because it it struck a chord with with me too I mean it it's one of the one of the another great thing that I've learned in the Al-Anon program is it's okay to to have my own life, you know, and to um, you know, d- despite what's going on in other people's lives, you know, their chaos and their unhappiness and and their problems. I mean, the program gives me permission to put the focus on myself and what is it that. I need to be doing or I want to be doing right now and and that's okay you know it's it's okay to lead my life even though other people are having trouble in 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 their life too I can have compassion for them but can't change what's going on but I can uh but it's okay for me to be happy to do mm-hmm. the things that I need to be doing for my own for my own life so that's all I got. Excellent. Really powerful messages. 
After a short break, we're going to continue with brief news about the podcast. Uh, and uh, next, we're going to have Bruce Springsteen singing Highway Patrolman, which is a song about one brother who is a cop protecting the other bad brother from the consequences of his actions. My name is Joe Roberts. I work for the state. I'm a sergeant out of Burnville. Barracks number eight. I always done an honest job, as honest as I could. I got a brother named Frankie, and Frankie ain't no good. Now, ever since we was young kids. It's been the same come down I get a call on the short way Frankie's in trouble downtown Well, if it was any other man I'd put him straight away But when it's your brother Sometimes you look the other way Yeah, me and Frankie laughing and drinking Nothing feels better than blood on blood Taking turns dancing with Maria As a band played night of the Johnstown flood I catch him when he's streaming Like any brother Man turns his back on his family Well, he just ain't no good Our topic next week will be self-care. We welcome your thoughts, and you can join the conversation. Do you often find yourself running low on sleep? Do you miss meals because you're too busy? Do you ever neglect your own basic needs in order to take care of someone else? Then this episode is for you. Please leave a voicemail or send us an email with your experience or questions about self-care. You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Just put the podcast on pause and join the conversation at 734-707-8795. You can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send an email to feedback at com. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's Siblings Roundtable or next week's topic of self-care. If you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, let us know. Spencer, where can our listeners find out more about The Recovery Show? Hey, Swetha, our website, therecoveryshow.com, has all the information about the show, including notes for each episode, a blog with daily meditations, links to the music we play, and a page to which we periodically post recordings of Open Talk speakers. We've also got links to a few other recovery podcasts and websites that we like. And so you can just go to therecoveryshow.com and find out all about the, the show and, uh, you know, listen to past episodes, read the meditations, and so on. We will be recording our next episode live using Mixler.com as we've done the, the last few episodes. We'll probably be recording it Saturday morning, August tw- uh, 31st. Uh, that'll be morning in the uh, eastern time zone of the United States, which, you know, translates to different times of day depending where you are, of course. We will post the exact date and time on the website at least a couple of days ahead of recording. The easiest way to find us is to click on the Listen Live link on the right of the web page, 
And if you would like email notifications about our live episode scheduling, just send us an email and we will add you to the list. And uh, we're going to close the show with Demons by Imagine Dragons. Uh, Swetha, what do, what do you have about that? Oh, I uh, really liked the song a lot, uh, partially because of the just the music, but also I felt it really tied into the topic of Siblings Roundtable because of some of the lyrics I heard. Um, I want to hide the truth, I want to shelter you, but with the beast inside, there's nowhere we can hide. So uh, here it is. When the days are cold and the cards all fold and the saints we see are all made of gold. When your dreams all fail and the wounds we hail are the worst of all and the bloods run stale. I want to hide the truth, I want to shelter you, but with the There's nowhere we can hide No matter what we breed We still are made of greed This is my kingdom come This is my kingdom come Thank you for listening and please keep coming back Whatever your problems are, there are those among us who've had them too If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today Feel free to contact us so that we can talk about it in a future episode May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time. It's where my demons hurt. call it's the last of all. When the lights fade out, all the sinners crawl. So they dug your grave in the masquerade. Will come calling out at the mess you've made. Don't want to let you. Down, but I am hell bound. Oh, this is all for you. Don't wanna hide the truth. No matter what we breed, we still are made of greed. This is my kingdom come. This is my kingdom come.